Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hi, this is Colin. You're about to hear a show that was actually recorded and produced about a year ago uh, when the Supreme Court was very much in the news because of the Dobbs decision. And of course, there were some uh, revelations about uh, Clarence Thomas. More revelations about Clarence Thomas has come come along since then. And now more recently, Justice Alito is also in the news because it turns out that according to him, if there's a seat on a private jet going somewhere really fun that nobody is sitting in and you sit in it, that doesn't count as getting a free seat. I don't know that that would stand up in court. But anyway, because the Supreme Court is, if anything, more politicized and more suspect and less universally respected now, even than it was then, we're coming back to look at it one more time. So this is Colin. And yes, Supreme Court ethics are back in the news big time because of a ProPublica piece about Samuel Alito and the rather bizarre decision of the Wall Street Journal editorial board to let Justice Alito respond to the piece before the piece had appeared in print to preemptively complain about a piece that had not been published. There are certain kinds of access that you get if you are a Supreme Court justice of a certain stripe, and that includes the Wall Street Journal, but also includes things like private jets and fancy vacations and things like that with people who may have business coming up before the Supreme Court. So yes, the Supreme Court has gone from this kind of cloaked institution, robed institution of demigods to a far too mortal group of people who are very, very influenced by their own politics. So we feel as though there's an awful lot of stuff in this show that we did a while back that is very, very applicable to the present moment. So here is that show. Yes, we're going to talk about those nine Supreme Court justices. I guess Ira Gershwin couldn't figure out how to squeeze justices into that metric line. Uh, But yes, we're going to talk about the Supreme Court. I'm probably in kind of a bad mood about this stuff because once again, I didn't win a Pulitzer Prize. And I didn't win a Ginny Thomas Impact Award, which she gives out to people who are battling against the forces of darkness or something. Um, But yeah, I mean, to me, the Supreme Court is an increasingly... I don't know. It's an odd duck within the constitutional constellation in the sense that it does whatever it wants to do. And there isn't too much anybody can do about it. I I, I guess we're about to find out that it was created that way. But uh, in a way, some of my feelings uh, about the Supreme Court are summed up in the 
non-documentary film feature, first Monday in October, starring Walter Matthau and Jill Clayburgh, and they are they play Supreme Court justices. First Monday in October is when the Supreme Court session starts. Anyway, here's a little clip. I get the impression that the state of Nebraska would like to see this film confiscated, burned, and the ashes sent into space. Is, is that the idea? If the court so recommend. Is it your contention that the Constitution gives this court any such power? This court is the judge of its own power. So to me, yeah, this court is the judge of its own power. I don't know. I'm going to try to do this again without butchering it. There's a legal maxim that goes something like Nemo Judex in sua casa. Nobody should be a judge in their own case. Uh, and that's sort of what it looks like to me, the Supreme Court is. Uh, anyway, there's lots of people on this show. We have great guests today, uh, and there's lots of people who know way more about this than I do, starting with Akhil Reed Amar, Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University and author of The Words That Made Us, America's Constitutional Conversation, 1760 to 1840, among many other books. Welcome back to our show, sir. It's always great to be with you. Thanks for having me, Colin. So you heard me fulminating there, perhaps, uh, about the Supreme Court, uh, but uh, uh, let's have a more reasoned and measured opinion from you. So just within within the Constitution, within the constellation of the federal government, describe what the status of the Supreme Court is. We hear a lot about checks and balances. The Supreme Court seems like more consistently a check than a checked. Uh, so... The Constitution very famously has three branches um, and the judiciary is listed third out of three. The legislature is mentioned first, Article One, the presidency, second, Article Two. Congress has a lot of electoral clout and um, the power to spend money, the power of the purse, very famously. Uh, the president's nationally elected. He's one person. He's got a lot of authority, including war authority and, and first mover advantages. He has the power of the sword. Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton of Lynn Miranda fame, uh, very famously wrote that the judiciary was the least dangerous branch. It has neither purse nor sword, neither force nor will merely judgment. They can't make laws quite. They can they can block laws, but they can't quite enact laws. And they're picked by the other branches in principle. They don't pick the other branches. They're third out of three. And that's how it was for much of American history. Today, however, I would say the court is more powerful than um, perhaps um, ever in its history. More powerful than the framers would have intended? Perhaps, but we've had some constitutional amendments over the centuries that have been designed in part to expand the powers of of, of court. So it's not the Constitution isn't just about um, the framers. Um, Colin, in at least my lifetime, I just can't remember actually, you know, exactly how old you are. But you know, with Watergate and Vietnam, uh, the political branches lied to us, and the court actually, through the Pentagon Papers case, the Nixon tapes case, came to have a little bit more credibility. You and I have mainly lived through an era of divided government. Every president since uh, LBJ, except for Carter, uh, faced an opposition Speaker of the House, opposition party Speaker of the House, for at least part of their time in office. And so when the political branches, the Congress and the president are kind of at loggerheads, that gives a lot more running room for the court, no matter what it does, either Congress will like it or the, 
president will like it and Congress and the president can't easily get together and, and gang up on the court. So there are a lot of reasons why the judiciary is more powerful today than ever before. I just mentioned briefly three constitutional amendments over the years, divided government and Watergate in Vietnam. So simultaneously with this, and, and I, I should bracket this and say, obviously, the whole design of this, the lifetime appointments, the relatively low degree of transparency compared to uh, other branches of government, is meant to insulate the court from such tawdry issues as public opinion. But public opinion really is nonetheless falling at a, like a rock. There's a sense anyway that the credibility and the legitimacy of the Supreme Court, for whatever reason, seems imperiled. What are your thoughts about that? Uh, yes and no. Um, so it's true that the court um, has uh, dropped in the polls compared to what the court used to be. And I'll tell you why in a second, but it still compares pretty favorably to the other branches of government. And, you know, um, it, you know, if, if this were the Three Stooges game, you know, it's the favorite stooge of, of the public or something. Um, so uh, Congress's approval ratings are far less. And I've testified before that the Congress lots of times for senators are, in fact, my own students. But I, I, I think the Senate and the, the House have actually dropped further. Um, the president. Oh, my gosh, you know, whether you, you don't like Donald Trump or you don't like Joe Biden, you probably really don't like one of our you know, two most recent presidents. So um, the, the presidency is um, very dysfunctional, I think, in, in certain respects. You also mentioned transparency. It's true that the court actually in doing its deliberation is very secretive, but it does release written opinions, giving you not just their bottom line, but their their ruling, but their reasons far more than the executive branch. A lot of times we don't even know what the president is up to. And the Congress actually tells us the, the rules, but doesn't always tell us why. Now, here's why the court is, I, I think, um, uniquely in the modern era, uh, down in the polls, because for much of American history, there were times when liberals hated the court, but conservatives liked it in the 1930s, when the early 30s, when the court was striking down all sorts of New Deal legislation, minimum wage, maximum hour, consumer protection, worker safety issues. So in that era, the, the liberals hated the court. It was the bad old court, but the conservative stalwarts, you know, the, the Herbert Hoover types liked it. Then in the 1960s, the liberals liked the court and the conservatives were talking, were shouting about impeach Earl Warren. The unique thing today is that the court is under simultaneous attack from the hard left, the AOCs of the world, you know, the Bernie Sanders crowd, the progressives, and from the, the hard right evangelicals and the like. It's a function of Twitter and other things that have empowered um, extremes. And you're seeing that with the court. So no matter what it does, you know, people on both ends of the spectrum are dumping on it. But, I, you know, it's still doing better, candidly, if you're talking about polls, than the House, the Senate and the presidency in general. So one of the things we can look at is the whole question of responsiveness. Uh, and once again, the court is designed, I think, to be not particularly responsive to public opinion. But, you know, one of the ways that that the other branches are responsive is we cannot vote for them the next time they run for office, whether it's the executive branch or the legislative branch. There are things that we can do. There are fewer things we can do about the Supreme Court. And then this comes up, I think, when we look at something like the activities of Ginny Thomas, wife of Clarence Thomas, who seems heavily involved, heavily involved uh, in, in 
at this point, kind of almost innumerable cases that he's heard in his 30-something year career. Um, uh, in other, uh, other justices have recused themselves. Breyer famously would recruit, you recuse himself from anything his brother, who was an appellate court uh, judge, handled. Uh, you had the, the instances of, of, I think, both Roberts and Ginsburg, their spouses just kind of stopped practicing law rather than, <laughs> rather than create problems. But, you know, here you have something that really screams conflict of interest, and there appears to be nothing anybody not named John Roberts could do about it. Can you say a little bit more? So full disclosure, we're talking about some people that I know pretty well. I clerked for Stephen Breyer way back when and used to often pick up the phone when his brother Chuck would call and his brother sounds a lot like him. (laughs) And it was all I could do to suppress a giggle because it sounded like someone was doing a great personal impression of the boss. I'm I'm friendly with some of the other folks you mentioned. Here's what I think. Um, I don't want to talk about the, the details, but we should actually have ethics rules binding the Supreme Court justices. We do for lower court judges. Congress clearly has power to do that, just like it has the power to pass rules of civil procedure and criminal procedure and evidence and and jurisdiction. Congress, as I mentioned before, is first among equals. It's the first branch. It has explicit authority in Article I of the Constitution to pass rules and regulations for the judiciary, including the Supreme Court. I think it should do that um, for the justices um, until it does that. And I don't want to get into individual marriages. Yeah, yeah. They're complicated. Sometimes I, you know, pillow talk. I don't know who talks to whom and how. So don't want, you know, nothing that I say is about, about the specifics, but we should have a general um, ethics code. Um, if Congress doesn't want to do it, I think, or, you know, if Congress hesitates to do it, the court would be wise to promulgate its own rules to cut Congress off at the pass, because if they don't, there's going to be pressure that builds up for Congress to act. And yes, um, if the court doesn't do it, John Roberts could speak up. Truthfully, um, other justices could speak up if they wanted to. It'd be edgy, but they could. Other (laughs) judges could speak up on on lower federal courts. It would be edgy, but they're allowed to under rules of under the rules of judicial ethics. Judges are actually permitted to mouth off about issues like judicial ethics. That's actually, you know, they're not supposed to talk about certain things, but they actually are encouraged to talk publicly outside the confines of cases and controversies about issues of judicial ethics. So to get a little wonky here, I mean, imagine that the Congress decided to do something. And so they they, they pass some kind of statute saying, hey, you got to have a code of ethics and here's how it's going to work. And they draft regs to go with the statute. And, it, you know, assume presumably that would involve some kind of independent review panel. Right. I mean, you're not going to it doesn't really make any sense or I don't think it improves things very much to place the nine members of the court in charge of implementation and enforcement of the court's code of ethics. Or maybe it does. Maybe you'll say it does. Go ahead. Yeah. I'm not an expert, actually, on how our state Supreme Courts are um, regulated by state statutes, but I am a believer in uh, Louis Brandeis's idea of looking at the state's Um, as laboratories of experimentation. Again, I'm not an expert on how other countries in the world do it. I would focus probably first on other states and how they deal with their apex courts. But even if um, a code of ethics, you know, um, weren't perfectly enforceable, even if it were somewhat hortatory, it would still actually tell the justices a little bit more about what Congress thinks the lines should be. 
And and there's always, of course, the looming possibility of impeachment or uh, short of that oversight hearings um, um, if the rules are transgressed. So so even if Congress just said, hey, you know, we're not going to tell you exactly how to enforce it, but here's what we think the rules should be for spouses, for cocktail parties, for fundraisers, for um, investments, for this, for that, not just for lower federal court judges, but Supreme Court justices. So I want to go back to the confirmation hearing uh, of Judge Roberts. This is not a question about Judge Roberts, so don't worry. You're already in enough trouble. for You already compared the Supreme Court to Curley, basically. Uh, <laughs> Yale professor, uh, that's the headline, Yale professor compares Supreme Court to Curley of the Stooges. Uh, well, and, and just on that, you know, uh, um, uh, you often hear that more Americans can name the three Stooges than the three branches of government. I don't think it's a fair question because there were actually five Stooges when you bring in, you know, Joe and, and, and Shemp and Curley plus uh, Larry Moe. So I actually don't think that's a, that's, that's a fair point. Okay, but you're, anyway, you're really disturbingly knowledgeable about this whole thing. But um, so, yeah. So in uh, in 2005, Justice Roberts is going through confirmation uh, and this uh, perky young senator from Illinois, his name was Obama, I believe, uh, at the end, he describes Roberts in his speech during the confirmation process in glowing, describes Roberts in glowing terms. And then he says this, the problem I face is that while adherence to legal precedent and rules uh, of statutory or constitutional construction will dispose of 95 percent of the cases that come before a court so that both a Scalia and a Ginsburg will arrive at the same place most of the time on those 95 percent of the cases. What matters on the Supreme Court is those 5 percent of the cases that are truly difficult. And I, I wonder if in your observation, just heuristically, whether you agree with the math there, that 95 percent of the cases just track to the law well enough so that you know, any number of judges with fairly disparate uh, political leanings or ideological bents are still going to wind up in the same place. And it really is the kind of the 5% of the cases that we wind up knowing a lot about because they don't work that way. Yeah, I would. I, I think that's close. I would actually say um, at the Supreme Court is maybe 20 or 30%. Remember, the Supreme Court just takes a, a teeny tiny percentage of the cases litigated in America. But of the 70 or so cases that they decide, yeah, 20 of them are very hot button controversial uh, issues that that polarize the nation. So not not 5%, but 20% once you get to the Supreme Court. All right. So um, I'm not going to keep you too much longer. And I should say at the end of the show, the the third and final segment is Emily Bazelon and Tara Grove talking about possible fixes. But, you know, one thing that we didn't talk about, because one of the possible fixes that gets discussed, obviously, is so-called court packing, uh, altering the number of, uh, of justices for various reasons. But why is it that we have nine justices? I don't think nine is in the Constitution, is it? It's not. It started. The Constitution gives Congress power over that, just like I said, it gives Congress power over ethics rules and procedure and jurisdiction. The original Congress set the number at six. It's been as low as five by statute. It's been as high as 10. It basically froze up in the late uh, 1800s at about nine, about the same time that American baseball was becoming the national pastime with the nine member teams. So go figure Um, (laughs) three stooges and uh, nine people on a court, nine people on a a baseball team. It could be changed. I think that would be a mistake. Um, Court packing. I testified before the Biden commission. I proposed instead of, because one side, if it tries to add six, 
The other side, then when it comes in power, we'll add 15. And then, you know, when, when the pendulum swings back again, the other side will add 23. We'll just spiral out of control. And the six that you want to add aren't going to be the ones that Joe Manchin is going to confirm in any event if you're on the left. So, so that's, I think, actually candidly a non-starter. And I say that as someone who actually testified before the, the commission. I know Tara has some ideas, I'm sure, about that, as does my friend um, Emily as well. My fix is 18-year term limits for the justices. It can be done by statute. Technically, they're on the court for life. They um, hold their offices for, for life. They, they hold their titles for life. They get paid undiminished salaries for life. But after 18 years, they basically rotate off the front bench and do other stuff. Ride circuit, help the court decide what cases it's going to hear, pinch it when the court is short-staffed, do uh, public relations and, and other things that need to be done. But basically, in a Mars world, you're on the front bench for 18 years and you rotate off after that. Every president gets two picks, you know, one in, in year uh, one of the presidency, one in year three, which are the less controversial years, two and four are election years. And, and those are um, uh, more superheated. So let's have every president put two people on the front bench in the president's first year and the president's third year. And then they rotate off after 18 years and 18 divides very nicely by nine since we've been talking about numbers. <laughs> oh, this, this is a multidisciplinary conversation. Uh, Akhil <laughs> Ridamar, Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, as always. Let's take a uh, break and come back with another old friend, David Folkenflik. To write a list of principles for keeping people free. The USA was just starting out a whole brand new country. And so our people spelled it out, the things that we should be. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the Go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. So this show, I want to remind you, is about a year old. We did it around the time of the leak of the Dobbs decision. And that's why you're going to hear a conversation right now about why a leak of a decision in advance of that decision in the Supreme Court is still a very big deal and is still very relevant right now. 
All right. So, I mean, we're having this conversation, although it's not really about this particular case or this particular leak or uh, about uh, about abortion trials. Uh, we're having this conversation in a very pointed way after Politico published a leaked draft opinion uh, on a Mississippi abortion case. Uh, and here to talk about sort of how that factors into best practices in the world of journalism is David Fulkenflick, NPR's media correspondent. Haven't talked to you in a while. Welcome back to the show. Too long. Too long, long Colin. So, you know, I mean, judging from the reaction of of Justice Chief Justice Roberts and some of the other people commenting on this, including some journalists, the decision to publish a leaked draft opinion, it's like you would think the Supreme Court had some undercover agents in Berlin or something who were were going to be outed by this. I mean, there's quite a high level of dudgeon. Uh, What's your reaction to that? Well, what's the old expression, where you stand often depends on where you sit? Uh, I think that it's entirely understandable that uh, Chief Justice Roberts would be highly frustrated, highly upset by the idea that this information, this draft opinion, not even a fully, not an opinion that was ready to be released to public in a few days, but a draft opinion had been circulated publicly for two reasons. One of which is the question of the politics. I mean, as we've seen in reporting in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, uh, the chief justice has been trying to circulate a more narrowly tailored decision and get one of the five conservative votes uh, that seem to have embraced Justice Alito's reasoning on side with him. And the very fact of the leak makes it harder because then we know that Justice Barrett, Justice Kavanaugh, one of the others, had switched. And that is not something they want to be known as doing. They want it to be seen as though they've emerged from the sea foam like Aphrodite on the shell, you know, uh, fully formed uh, as though there's no calibration, compromise, none of that going on behind the scenes, although we all know that to be the fact if you look at the court closely. So there's that. In practical terms, it makes it much harder, I think, for Chief Justice Roberts to achieve that. But secondarily, he's the guy who's the chief steward of the of federal courts and particularly of the Supreme Court, of its prestige, of its legacy, of the role it plays in American political social life. I mean, there was this famous instance in which President Andrew Jackson got an adverse ruling from the court. And he was said, he was asked, you know, what was he going to do about it? He said, the courts made their ruling. Now let them go enforce it. The court has influence and sway in society, assuming that people enforce its rulings. Uh, it doesn't have the United States Army, the National Guard, the police, the you know FBI to go and enforce its rulings. It's got to be sort of this uniform understanding among the branches of government and then state and local jurisdictions that they have to abide by Supreme Court ruling. If the Supreme Court is seen as it is increasingly being seen as political, as riven by partisan divisions, uh, and as blind to not only the perceived needs of the public, but also the idea that the court has some majesty and aura to it and that precedent matters because it's an enduring institution, then, it, you know, Roberts believes that that will be a very weakened institution that he is leading. And I think he's seeing some of that now. He's trying to paper it over. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I love that Jackson quote, it, a little bit reminiscent of uh, Stalin uh, being told that the Pope had condemned him in some way. He said, how many divisions does the Pope have? Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the irony, the sad irony of Roberts is that he is the supreme, supreme court institutionalist. He loves the institution. He wants to do everything he can to burnish its image. And he has presided during a time in which the image, you know, they're tanking, they're tanking in the polls, not that they should necessarily care 
care about that. But all of the things that you're describing, David, have in fact led to a pretty low public opinion uh, of the Supremes. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, you think about the way in which the court communicates to the public. It has been, you know, dragged into, let's say, the 20th century very begrudgingly, much less the 21st. It's kind of a 19th century institution. So you have the robes, you know, when uh, Rehnquist was presiding over Clinton's uh, impeachment process in the Senate, you know, he had the, he decided to have these gold strips around his rose that people said made him look like he was a character from Gilbert and Sullivan. Well, no, it you was know, intentional. Are, it was intentional. He's a Gilbert and Sullivan fan, and, and he was modeling it uh, very specifically on Gilbert and Sullivan. Love it. I mean, you know, uh, it's a place where and I can agree on things, right? Like, I, I think that's fun and charming, but it, it tells you what they're thinking about. You know, the, the court looks like a Greek temple, you know, and kind of for a reason. And uh, it's an institution that requires a degree of mystery about itself. And it, it it does that because it wants people to absorb its constitutional interpretations as being what must necessarily be the right interpretation of what contemporary circumstances and laws uh, must be viewed at when examined against the Constitution. But what we know, have known for decades, but increasingly are aware of, is that these are people with ideological outlooks as well as legal backgrounds and training who are interpreting the Constitution often to hew as co- closely on left and on, on the right uh, to their own beliefs the Constitution. What makes this moment particularly complicated for Roberts is that you have people on the wing of the court that say they are originalists, that is, that things have to coincide with the way the founders intended, that are having to tie themselves into pretzels to either make their judgments conform to that or to ignore any sort of earlier constitutional interpretations of what the Constitution meant uh, to be able to issue the rulings that they are. And, you know, Roberts is himself quite conservative, but not, you know, by being somebody in charge of the court, he is very much trying to find a way to find a broader consensus and to project to the public that this is, whether or not you agree with these decisions, these are reasoned and principled and not purely political or ideological decrees. And the folks on his right, who are in some ways his ideological peers and compatriots, are making it increasingly hard for the chief justice to do that. So, you know, in connection with this leak, uh, well, I mean, for example, at Politico, uh, which published the leak, there was an opinion piece by the famously crusty journalism critic Jack Schaefer. I believe the headline was, Get Over Yourselves, You Pathetic Wussies. And that's just yeah. actually a generic headline they write for all of Jack Schaefer's columns. But he's basically saying, so, so we got hold of a draft and we got hold of a draft opinion. So what? Welcome to being covered by journalism. Uh, that's the way it's going to happen. We got you this time. Maybe we don't get you next time. And and I'm wondering how you think about that in terms of how journalists either do or should interpret their jobs. I mean, to listen to Roberts talk and to even some journalism, you know, beat reporters talk, this is a, a bridge too far. You shouldn't try to get your filthy mitts on a draft opinion. For all of the reasons that you've just outlined, that's the harm. People don't feel as comfortable changing their minds uh, if, in fact, we, we know where they are uh, at a certain point. But should journalists just go after that stuff anyway? So let me say I have like a very uh, latticed reaction to this, but one fundamental core belief, and I'll say it briefly and then I'll come back to it, which is that the Supreme Court is a co-equal branch of the federal government, one of three. 
And it is hugely important to how people live their lives, how they experience their interactions in commerce with one another, with churches, with schools, with law enforcement. And the idea that it shouldn't be subject to intensive reporting is preposterous, much as the court seems to believe that that's the case. They are not the Oracle at Delphi. They are public officials and public servants. And you know they get to be subject to scrutiny. They are among the least accountable elements in American public life. Perhaps the best recent instance of that is Justice Thomas. Clarence Thomas's wife obviously has clear connections to folks who planned the rally on January 6th that became the siege of the Capitol and seems to have urged them on in, in certain kinds of ways. There are questions about her role and influence, which are significant. And Justice Thomas has declined to recuse himself from any cases involving people charged on January 6th uh, or, or the tussles over information being requisitioned by, say, the House Committee investigating it or the FBI. Who gets to decide that? Justice Thomas does. Now, that's not a journalistic question, but it is a question about transparency and accountability. And, you know, absent Chief Justice Roberts personally intervening, there's no real way to force any transparency or accountability on that absent an actual impeachment that is the removal from process, a totally binary thing. You either do nothing or try to pull the guy out. Those, there's a tension there. And journalists fill uh, information vacuums or they try to. They try to explain what's going on. I think that, that, that the Supreme Court should be held to that. I do think that there is something about when you are, there's part of me that has got, you know, I try to get various kinds of scoops as a reporter, you know, I've talked over the years. Sometimes when you get a scoop that's going to come out publicly in an hour or a day, the value of the scoop, while celebrated by the journalists themselves, is that there's little remembered by the general public. Like, it doesn't matter unless the event being described, like the Kennedy assassination, is, is so grave as to be world-changing. In this instance, I think it's fascinating to see the, the works of the, the minds of the justices. One way to think about it as well, forgive me for going on on this, but you know, you know, Congress was notoriously uh, bad about accountability and transparency. Uh, I covered the Hill in in late '90s, and Congress, you know, because of the idea that the different branches could be checks on each other, but did none was had primacy over the other. You know, it wasn't as though the U.S. Department of Labor could oversee labor practices on the Hill. Well, it turned out a lot of people were being sexually harassed, and that the House of Representatives, the Senate, were kind of their own bosses in overseeing that. It turned out that there wasn't a lot of accountability on certain kinds of financial disclosure. Well, because of scandals, that's been forced upon them to to put in place to a slightly greater degree on themselves. Congress did put cameras uh, in the floor of the House, for example, when Brian Lamb, founder of C-SPAN, kind of convinced congressional leaders that he could perform a useful uh, service on behalf of the cable industry in, in the hopes that they didn't overly regulate the content. It was sort of a trade-off of public virtue. But what was interesting was that Newt Gingrich, among others, was then able to take advantage of the cameras and sort of speak to the cameras and get memes in the 90s uh, on local TV back home by sort of talking these empty chambers. The Supreme Court doesn't want to create memes. The Supreme Court doesn't really interested in that. So it really, it, it's banned video tape, video cameras, and most federal court rooms don't allow that either. And they allow certain kinds of uh, recordings that are now allowed to come out. But for example, when the judges read their decisions from the bench, that's only available to us you know, months after the decisions have been rendered. So this is not a what I would consider a modern uh, setup. You know, European counterparts, senior state courts, you know, most of them have videos so that you can see what judges are doing and see what's happening in court. 
uh, as as you would if you were there in person. It seems like it's not a 21st century institution to me in terms of how it communicates with the public, and that that's very intentional. All right, we have to stop there. David Folkenflik, great to have you back with us, NPR's media correspondent. Just a reminder, we're re-airing this conversation from about a year ago, right after the Dobbs decision was leaked, about ethics and the Supreme Court. We'll be back after the break with a conversation about what we could possibly do about some of these ethical issues. So we are back. Time to make some quick thank yous. Uh, one to Kat Pastor, our technical producer, the other to senior producer, Lily Tyson, who's also the producer of this episode. So we're going to spend the last, we're going to take 15 minutes and, and fix the Supreme Court, basically. And here to do it, uh, we certainly have the right people. Tara Grove is a professor at the University of Alabama School of Law and was a member of the Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, this was uh, the one convened by uh, Joe Biden, uh, had 36 members at first, dropped down to 34, and uh, we'll be talking a little bit about what some of their ideas were. Emily Bazelon is back with us, too. This is like old friend day here. Uh, lecturer in law, senior research scholar in law, and a Truman Capote fellow at the Yale Law School, staff writer at the New York Times Magazine, co-host of a Slate Political Gab Fest. And I don't know if it's an official title, but she's clearly the chief legal analyst for Stephen Colbert, no matter what network he's on <laughs> or uh, any. So, um, Emily, your good friend Ruth Marcus uh, uses the term crisis of legitimacy. Uh, for the Supreme Court. Uh, there's, uh, uh, you know, the old adage is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Clearly, a lot of people think it's broke. So make the argument that it's broke. The argument that it's broke is that the Supreme Court is moving to the right dramatically and in a way that is out of sync with public opinion, kind of more than the um constitutional framework easily allows for, and also in a way that's at odds with uh, how basic principles of how the court operate works. So if you go down this road one more step, the court has issued a number of important decisions through what what's called its shadow docket, though some of the conservative justices hate that term. Basically, it's the emergency docket where you just, the court can decide um, issues without full briefing and argument. It's not supposed to use that docket to make law. In other words, to create precedents that other courts have to follow because it's such a truncated procedure. But it has been doing that. And so that's part of the brief um, criticizing its legitimacy right now. Right. I, I understand that there is even, according to Stephen Breyer, an unwritten law that you need six votes to reverse a lower court uh, using the emergency docket. In other words, six votes or a list, either that or you should hear arguments on it. Yeah, I mean, I think Justice Breyer has been trying to um, rein the court in for 
months, low years now, basically to keep trying to stand for its legitimacy, to, to try to use that card to hold the conservative justices to account. It has not been working very well. So, Tara Grove, I mean, before we get into the meat uh, of what the commission looked at, if you wanted to undermine credibility, if you wanted to make people lose faith in the Supreme Court, you almost couldn't do better than to have the kind of confirmation process we currently have. Going back to 87, if you're a Bork person or, uh, or, or 91, depending on when you think this all started, the, the posturing and the way in which kind of almost undercutting the legitimacy of nominees would seem to be something that wouldn't build confidence. Oh, I agree with that. And and thank you for for inviting me here. And I, I just I just want to say I I think it's been bad at the Supreme Court for a number of years. I think many people do think back to the Robert Bork era, but actually the Supreme Court confirmation process was not bad most of the time, even after Robert Bork. What happened in the 1980s is that the lower court confirmation process got worse and worse over time in the 1980s and 1990s. And that has now bled into the Supreme Court confirmation process where it where we've come to a situation where it will probably be hard to confirm any federal judge if the presidency and the Senate are in different hands. And I agree, it's a completely ugly process that has a real impact on the reputation of the court. But maybe not one that's fixable by anyone except the senators who participate in it? So... I think that is right, um, that the Senate itself could could do a lot to, to make the process better. Whether they will, of course, is, is a separate question. There's an appendix to the commission's report that actually talks about some of the testimony that we received about the confirmation process. Our charge was not to reform the Senate confirmation process, but we heard a lot of testimony about it. So in, in the appendix, we we include some suggestions that people have had for ways to reform it. For example, putting a limit on the amount of time that the Senate can take to consider a particular nominee, not just at the Supreme Court level, but at the lower court level as well. So, um, Emily, you also presided over a reform package. It was in the New York Times Sunday magazine. Uh, and you wrote the lead essay on, on that. I don't know. Do you, do you have a, a favorite one from the, the, the menu that was presented there or any other menu you have in your possession? Term limits. Mm-hmm. 18-year term limits. So the Constitution says that Supreme Court justices have life tenure. It was written hundreds of years ago when people had much shorter lifespans and when being a Supreme Court justice wasn't especially prestigious. So people didn't cling to power for many decades, which has become the norm. If we moved to 18-year term limits, every president would get two appointments to the Supreme Court. We would not have the kind of crazy politics that happen when um, a retirement or a death is either unexpected or can change the balance of power on the court. And I think that um, it just generally is a poor idea to have nine people have accrued so much power for many, many years. That's just not great for a democracy. All right. So earlier in the show, Akhil Rita Mar said the same thing. You guys can talk about it <laughs> at the coffee cart next time you see each other over on Hill House. Um, so let me ask you about one other idea that came up in that package, and then I want to go back to Tara Grove and see what her favorite ideas are. But 
I, one thing I liked mainly because of the very felicitous turn of phrase that she used, but in the package that you were uh, working on, Melody Wang uh, talked about the idea of not letting the Supreme Court control cert. In other, and what she said was that uh, that uh, Justice Roberts talks about calling balls and strikes, but they also decide who gets up to bat, uh, and that. Some, somehow or other outsourcing that to some kind of rotating group of appellate judges would maybe make them a little less terrifyingly uh, all-powerful. What was your reaction? I mean, sure. I'm not sure how much of a difference it would make. What the court is supposed to do is resolve what are called circuit splits. So if there's a legal issue that's being decided one way by a court that has jurisdiction in New England and another way by a court in the Midwest, well, that's not good because you're supposed to have one uniform set of rules for the country. And so a lot of what they do, especially in the less controversial cases that don't make headlines, is sort this stuff out. Um, they're also obviously have declared themselves since uh, 1803 to be the final arbiter of the meaning of the Constitution. That's the part that gets much dicier in terms of um, how much power they have and how they exercise it. I'm not exactly sure how another set of judges deciding which cases to funnel that them would address that second category of cases. And those are the stickler cases for the American people. All right. So, Tara Grove, I'm going to hand you a magic wand. You can make those 31 other pesky members of the commission go away. You're in charge of everything. Uh, p- pick a couple of things that you want to do. For the Supreme Court? Yes, for the, uh, to think, fix the Supreme Court, yes. Well, I think we, we clearly should have ethics rules for the United States Supreme Court. I think it's extraordinary that we have a situation where the lower federal judiciary is subject to all sorts of ethical rules, and the Supreme Court right now is subject to very, very few at all. Um, in fact, I think applying some of our civil rights laws to the entire federal judiciary would also be warranted. So I asked uh, Akhil Ridamar about this thing, too, because I like that idea as well. Although the my question is, and it's kind of a wonky question, how would you create some kind of enforcement mechanism? Uh, in other words, if you're going to have uh, a code of ethics for the Supreme Court, maybe you need, uh, unless you're going to have the nine justices just oversee their own code of ethics, which seems kind of like what they're doing now anyway, um, You know, how do you create an entity that can tell the Supreme Court what to do or when they've broken one of those rules? So I think that's a difficult question. I mean, first, there's a question of who creates the rules. Uh, The commission's report suggests the justices themselves should do it. Uh, There's been some talk about whether Congress can do it. I personally think Congress probably can, but that's that's a a subject of dispute. Then once you have them in place, how can you enforce them? I mean, at at bottom, there's always the impeachment process, right? If, If a justice does something that qualifies as a high crime or misdemeanor. Certainly a lot of ethical breaches would not qualify that way. And so then we come to the question, well, gosh, how would you enforce it? I actually think that's less of a concern than a lot of other people do. I think once there are rules for lawyers, lawyers tend to follow them, not always, but actually feel a lot of pressure to follow them. And I think it's much easier not to follow them when there aren't even rules out there at all. I think that right now the lower federal courts police themselves and there are questions about how how good of a job that they do. Um, certainly the justices could police one another. There have been have been calls for maybe an oversight um, and an entity to oversee the court. I'm not sure that would actually be necessary. One of the things I noticed on my commission, we were required to follow a lot of rules under the Federal Advisory Committee Act, the Presidential Records Act. And the reality was there 
weren't a lot of people looking over our shoulders. And yet the lawyers, and it was mostly lawyers on, on that commission, we were very diligent about following the rules that applied to us because we felt that we had to as lawyers. And I think if the Supreme Court had ethics rules, the justices would feel a tremendous amount of pressure to follow them. Right. I mean, I, as a journalist, I want to say one of the rules you had to follow was all basically sunlight uh, uh, legislation. And as you know, we could look at stuff, you know, maybe we didn't all the time, but we could look at the stuff that you did. And I, I think that's really important. So, Emily, you know, there's is there a sense of reform in haste, repent in leisure. I mean, we're all kind of keyed up right now. The right doesn't like everything on the court. The left doesn't like everything on the court. Everybody feels like everybody's mad at the court. They're tanking in their Gallup polls. Is this maybe, I mean, I'm totally with you on 18-year term limits, but is this maybe, is, is there a danger of rushing into something? Who's rushing? Nothing's happening. I mean, <laughs> I see nothing on the horizon. I mean, the Tara is totally right that President Biden gave the commission a limited brief and the commission admirably, admirably performed its role. I see no um, real push on either side of the political spectrum to address the deficiencies with the court's structure. And I think it's a really, really hard thing to do. Um, first of all, voters have trouble rewarding politicians for wonky structural reforms. Like it's just not the same as reducing inflation or um, protecting Social Security in terms of people's sense of an immediate benefit. And also there's like just widespread disagreement about what to do about the court. Tara Grove, uh, you know, we were Emily was talking about the shadow docket or the emergency docket, whatever we're going to call it. Um, and I, I, I'm noticing Justice Alito's language about this. He says the catchy and sinister term shadow docket has been used to portray the court as having been captured by a dangerous cabal that records to, resorts to sneaky and improper methods to get its ways. And this feels like unprecedented efforts to intimidate the court or damage it as an independent institution. And I'm not really asking you a question about the shadow docket. And we're kind of at the end of the show. But one gets the feeling that the Supreme Court isn't really very interested in being reformed in any particular way. Did you get any sense of its kind of body temperature about that? You've only got about a minute. I'm sorry to tell you. Right. So we we did not take any testimony from from the justices on the commission. I'll tell you, based on my own research and conversations with lawmakers over the years, I am quite confident the Supreme Court does not want to be reformed. In fact, if you read Chief Justice Roberts' annual report, from December 31st, 2021, it talks about ethics, judicial ethics. It talks about it only for the lower federal courts and doesn't even mention that there was an entire commission on the Supreme Court talking about a variety of issues. So I, I think the Supreme Court has always been very reticent to accept reform, but right now that may be the best way to improve the legitimacy of the court in the public eye. All right. We have to stop there. Emily Bazelon, lecturer in law. I can't say all your titles. We'll run out of time. Uh, staff writer for The New York Times Magazine, co-host of the Slate Political Gab Fest. Thanks for taking time out from it to uh, talk to us. Tara Grove, professor at the University of Alabama School of Law, uh, member of the Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court of the United States. Thanks again to Lily Tyson for producing this.
said that 